Well, hello everyone and good evening or good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are in the world and welcome uh, to this roundtable discussion uh, entitled Understanding and Responding to Cuckooing. Uh, my name is Dr. Jack Spicer and I'm going to be chairing this roundtable discussion. Uh, I'm a criminologist uh, based at the University of Bar, uh, and I've been studying and, and writing a bit ab uh, on this area of cuckooing for a few years now. Uh, and I'm delighted that joining me in this session are four other people who have been studying and writing and conducting research on this area too. So they'll introduce themselves in more detail shortly, but just to outline who else is on the panel, Right from the start, we have uh, Dr. Laura Bainbridge, Professor Rose Broad, Professor Simon Harding, and Professor Stephen McDonald. Um, and as I said, all of these uh, members of the panel have undertaken work or indeed maybe currently undertaking research on this topic of cuckooing in some form or another. And importantly, all of the panelists come at this issue from different angles, whether that be adopting different theoretical lenses to look at this problem or focusing on a range of relevant issues that might be attached or connected to the topic of cuckooing as well. And as this is an area of perhaps increasing importance, perhaps of increasing interest, yet one that arguably remains relatively under-researched, we thought that this would be a suitable forum for, I guess, in some ways, taking stock of, of where we are now in relation to uh, research and understanding on this issue, as well as a really nice forum to discuss a range of pertinent issues and think about the future, hence why we've decided to undertake this roundtable discussion format. And given that this is a roundtable discussion, there will not be any formal uh, presentations uh, in the way in which you might uh, expect from a, a conference or PowerPoint slides uh, for that matter either. Uh, instead, I've sketched out some broad questions that I'll ask the panels to uh, the panel members to consider and discuss. Uh, so we'll do uh, that over the next uh, hour. But given the nature of this session, we'd also really like to encourage you as the audience to really get involved in this discussion as well. So please can I ask you all if you do have any questions, and I'd encourage you to ask uh, sort of any and everything on this topic, please do post those questions in the Q&A box and I'll do my best to collate them all and then relay them to our panel um, uh, in the last 15 minutes or so of this uh, session. So I hope that all sounds uh, okay. Um, without further ado, what I'll now ask each panellist to do is just to quickly introduce themselves, talk about their wider research interests, and give us a, a brief flavour of their specific interest in this topic of uh, cuckooing. Uh, so in no particular order, uh, Laura, I wonder if you could kick us off here first, please. Well, thank you, Jack. So yeah, I'm Dr. Laura Bainbridge. I'm a lecturer in criminal justice at the University of Leeds in the UK. Um, my research specialisms tend to focus on um, kind of violence reduction and the way that policies transfer across the globe. But more recently, I have been researching cuckooing victimisation, um, specifically looking at the pathways to victimisation and the various kind of strategies or mechanisms mechanisms that could be put in place to reduce victimisation, um, primarily by the police, but also by other community partners as well. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Laura. Uh, Simon, did you want to go next? 
Yes, thanks, Jack. Uh, my name is uh, Professor Simon Harding. I'm a professor of criminology at the University of West London. And uh, my particular research area of expertise and interest is uh, ranges from street gangs and uh, youth violence through to county lines, drug markets and uh, modern slavery and exploitation. So quite the gamut. Uh, I first came upon cuckooing when I was working as a housing researcher back in 1985, would you believe? Quite a, quite a while back. It wasn't called cuckooing then, but uh, it certainly had an origin in uh, the field of housing and housing research and management. Uh, so I still actively work very much on uh, cuckooing. I've just um, completed over 100 uh, interviews now with people who are involved in cuckooing, either as a victim or a, an offender, basically, and uh, hope to be uh, riding that up soon. So thank you. Brilliant. Thanks for that, Simon. Maybe we'll come back to that historical context a little bit later on in the session as well. That'd be fascinating. Uh, Rose. Would you like to introduce Hi, thanks, Jack. Um, I'm Rose Broad. I'm a professor of criminology at the University of Manchester. Um, and my main research has been around human trafficking and then modern slavery when, when that term was introduced. Um, and then I came to cuckooing probably when it started to be talked about in modern slavery meetings. So where I would be maybe with um, a steering group of a, of a project or with some with some NGOs and they would start talking about about mostly county lines and cuckooing together, which I'm sure we'll talk about um, today. So cuckooing then came up and I've been doing some specific work across Greater Manchester with um, professionals on the way that they respond to cuckooing victims. So with police and housing, as Simon said, and um, adult social care and a number of other, other agencies around their response to, to victims. Thank you for having me along. Thanks, Rose. And then... Last but not least, Stephen. Hi, everyone. I'm Steve MacDonald. I'm Professor of Social Work at Durham University. Uh, my research primarily, uh, research, my research primarily uh, focuses on disabled people. Uh, and uh, most of my research very much looks at hate crime, mate crime, uh, community forms of violence and exploitation. Uh, and because of this, this has led us into the field of cuckooing. Uh, originally, again, when I started looking at this, we were looking at county lines networks within our communities, which we're working within. But since starting research in the field of cuckooing, we've somewhat moved away from that and very much focused on localised forms of cuckooing. Brilliant. Great, thank you very much. And I think a, a really uh, essential, you know, other piece of the, the cuckooing puzzle, I think. Which is, which is, um, okay, I mean, I, I, I thought to begin with, it would be worth just broadly introducing this, this concept, this idea of uh, cuckooing before we go any further. So I'd like to invite the panellists to consider what they consider cuckooing actually to be, how you might go about defining it or conceptualising it. Uh, yourself. Uh, that might include the type of people who are affected by cuckooing as well as uh, the people undertaking it, um, and perhaps encouraging some reflection on the very term itself. Is it appropriate? Is it useful? Should we consider alternatives, for example? Uh, Simon, would you like to start? <laughs> yeah, kicking off with a definition. Um, wasn't quite ready for that, but I'll give it a go. Uh, it is uh, a form of 
um, coercive control and exploitation of vulnerable people in their current domestic context. I would try for that. I don't know, that doesn't capture everything and there are multiple aspects to this. And there is also the nexus between housing and disability and I'm very pleased Stephen's here to cover that side. So, but uh, that that's probably where I would pitch it right right from the start. Um, Laura, I know you've perhaps considered some of the, the ideas of the, the term itself and the, and the definition. Did you have anything to, to add to that? Um, no, other than I think that um, cuckooing has become so closely aligned with with county lines activity that it's often kind of situated within this you know it's, it's a situation where vulnerable people's homes are taken over to um, store or cut or sell drugs weapons money whatever it might be but actually as Simon mentioned earlier you know, cuckooing has a much longer history um, and doesn't always have to involve you know drugs markets so I think um, being really careful about that is really important um, just to ensure that we're not um, overlooking victims who are you know yeah who've been who've been subjected to cuckooing that isn't county lines associated I guess. Stephen I mean coming coming to you on this topic mm-hmm. I mean you, you you raise the idea of the slightly different perhaps lens that you view this issue from I, in terms I of support- the definitions and conceptualizations has, has that had an influence on how you've viewed this problem yeah well I suppose my very simplistic definition uh is that it's you know when somebody's house is being taken over commandeered by a third party uh often assignment uh reference in terms of through coercive control uh the lens what we looked at very much in a sense we looked at the relationship between uh home takeovers and mate crime uh and you know the 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 notion of befriending we often use the concept of structurally vulnerable individuals rather than vulnerable individuals because we are very much influenced from a disability studies in in disability theory uh so in terms for us in terms of we ask the question in terms of what is it about local communities in terms of and how do spaces of exploitation emerge within particular communities? Because a lot of our research very much focuses on the exploitation of disabled people. And within our research, it's not all disabled people who are exploited, who are often the victim of made crime. Uh, and uh, and it's not all disabled people who have their homes taken over, it's particular groups. And there's an intersectional relationship there, and usually that links to areas of deprivation, poverty, social class, sometimes race and ethnicity, uh, and certain types of disability, so neurodivergent communities as well, uh, who are particularly at risk. Uh, So we look at the intersecting factors and we ask the question in terms of why is, why why are certain groups made vulnerable within certain communities, what leads to exploitation? So our definition of cuckooing really very much links to the coercive control in nature of how somebody will befriend and then take over a home to use for multiple different activities, not just selling drugs, although that sometimes is the case. Uh, certainly. And sometimes that is linked to county lines. But in our research, um, uh, you know, that's, that the, the majority of cases is, uh, is cases which emerge uh, within local communities. And it's usually local people who are doing the exploitation. Yeah. And, and I think it's, yeah, that, that notion, that idea of vulnerability, I think, has already come up and, and, and seems quite prominent. Um, and I would argue it's difficult, perhaps, to separate 
the contemporary conceptualization of cuckooing and how it's understood without understanding it as having been influenced by the discourses surrounding uh, vulnerability and the desire by the police and others to not just recognize vulnerability but respond to it uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, Rose, did you want to add anything uh, to this discussion? So yeah, I think in terms of the definition, it's probably useful, especially for people who are maybe not from from the UK, to say that cuckooing isn't a criminal offence. There's no there's no def- definition of a criminal offence that is cuckooing, and I think that causes a lot of problems for both people who are trying to identify as victims of something that isn't an offence and also for professionals when they're trying to put it into another box um obviously part of that has come under um modern slavery but there's not consensus even across um one borough I don't think of whether modern slavery is the appropriate framework um for it I think perhaps it isn't but I know that there's lots of of views that people think yes it fits but there's also some guidance that's been given by the the UK director of public prosecutions that says that it that it doesn't fit and we need separate legislation so that kind of conversation is ongoing at the moment and I think you know it's hard enough I think if you're trying to identify as a victim of crime if that is actually a crime but I think if you if it's if it's just something that people tell you especially when it has and I know Jack you asked this especially when it's got a kind of a funny name you know if you don't know what it is and I know that professionals are not keen we we did some focus groups across um with with lots of agencies as I said and there were only three people out of uh 40 who were keen on the term um they felt like it um made it sound not serious enough it caused problems with people trying to understand what what it meant um it made it sound like yeah like a something cartoonish it was confused with cook holding if you like for older people it was sort of made that that link so I think all of that is very confusing and I've heard people talk about things like home exploitation or um those kinds of things that might be an alternative term I think cuckooing is a bit of a problematic term and I think if they do move in the direction of specific legislation I don't think they should call it that um I don't know whether they will yeah I think it's a really interesting and an important point and one that I've come across both in, in research but also when I've gone to events and spoke at events in front of practitioners and, and it's an issue that's been raised. I remember someone relatively recently saying to me that they thought it was quite dehumanizing. I mean obviously the term derives from the you know the practice of wild cuckoo birds um, suggesting actually you know building on what you said Rose, that actually this is a very good way of talking about somebody being serious um, I guess one perhaps uh, response to that in terms of playing devil's advocate is that perhaps by abandoning that term and trying to use something else, we end up losing the awareness that has been raised on this topic over the last few years as well. I don't know if that's something, Simon, that that you have any thoughts on, given your your work in this area. Well, yes, I mean, it's interesting, um, it's interesting debate to consider, uh, you know, is it a valuable term or not? Uh, another uh, term I've, I've just scribbled down that I'm aware of is parasitic attachment or parasitic control. Um, cuckooing, yes, I understand, you know, as a term, it, it might also be very UK uh, oriented and, and based because, 
you know, I, I, I know the cuckoo bird is in parts of Europe outside Britain, but not um, universally. So uh, it does attach itself to a specific meaning of a specific um, uh, bird. Uh, but um, yes, you know, I, I did. I first came upon this when I was working as a young housing researcher. Uh, I hesitate to say it, but almost 40 years ago. And um, it was very much more aligned to this idea of kind of parasitic um, uh, attachment, really. Uh, there was a, a struggle to find the vocabulary for it. And uh, if the person had and I, I must say a visible disability, Stephen, then it was um, considered to be something along the lines of mate crime or, uh, you know, something of that ilk. Uh, neurodiversity issues 40 years ago were very uh, hard to locate or identify and people simply didn't understand them in the way they hopefully do now. Uh, so very much an origin in terms of housing management, uh, people who would move in, maybe ultimately sublet a property, but um, ensconce themselves effectively and uh, maybe eventually push the individual out, but maybe not push them out, maybe develop a kind of symbiotic relationship with them where the person is being uh, used and um, abused, maybe rung, rung out for money in a particular way, um, or their uh, prescribed medicine might be used, for example, or their benefits um, might be uh, purloined. So a number of different kind of mechanisms and reasons for doing it. And of course, that leads into different multiple uh, variations. But uh, Certainly, my early experience of it was from the field of housing, and it was something that usually came up sometimes by a social worker, sometimes even by a district nurse, and sometimes by uh, the local housing manager, and occasionally uh, people who were experiencing it as a victim, and the victim-offender nexus here is something we can maybe return to, but um, they would... Uh, come in to report maybe when they were paying their rent to say I have a problem I've got somebody here who has kind of moved in with me and uh, I can't get them out and they're now kind of taking things and I you know again exploitation was not part of the vocabulary at that point but that was very much intimated as to what was happening so it's curious that the, um, the vocabulary used to kind of frame this and uh, around discourse and, and the actuality of it has changed quite significantly uh, over the past 30 or 40 years. But it's an old crime. It's just uh, old wine in new bottles. Brilliant. Yeah, thank you, Simon. So I think maybe let's, let's pick up and run with that, that theme of the offender nexus maybe a little bit more then and, and perhaps also building on the important point that that you said uh rose um which was around uh cuckooing itself not actually being a, a crime per se but of course we know uh that cuckooing is often strongly connected with with other crimes or, or social harms more broadly um laura did you want to talk about this in relation to county lines perhaps at all, any other no, that's fine. I think um, one of the uh, problematic um, scenarios for the police in particular is, is that 
what I call the kind of continuum of complicity. So you have kind of ideal victim at the one end and then complicit victim at the other. And quite a lot of cuckooing cases fall right in the middle. Um, so in terms of the, um, yeah, the kind of victim perpetrator nexus, it can be really tough to untangle that relationship because the thing with um, cuckooing victims is often that they truly believe that the person who has taken over their home is their friend um, for whatever reason. Perhaps they've you know, given them drugs or money or friendship or sex, whatever it might be. There's usually a kind of exchange relationship there and kind of recognising that exploitation can can take time. Um, and I think part of the, the police response at the moment is that... Um, trying to gain access to the property or trying to encourage the the victim um to engage with services to to recognize that what is happening is not okay that their home should be a safe space um and that it currently isn't and i think that that is really tough and um, particularly when the victim um perhaps is neurodivergent perhaps has mental health issues perhaps is just incredibly lonely um so yeah i think i think that is that seems to be from the research um findings that are kind of emerging from my study that seems to be the the kind of the difficult um gray area that, that the police are, are kind of struggling to operate within so yeah, i think that corresponds yeah the amount of time i spent with police officers and sometimes other professionals stood outside flats trying to or at least try to negotiate their ways in. I mean Stephen from a, a kind of social work perspective how does that chime with the sort of yeah. you know both theoretical and disciplinary ideas that that you bring to this this area? Yeah I suppose from my perspective the criminal justice system is just one agency which the police is the criminal justice agencies such as the police are just one agency of multiple agencies which we deal with. I think it drawn on both points which have been discussed here. If we go back in terms of thinking about the history, I think in terms of, I think a lot more research needs to be done in this area, but it's really interesting, especially what Simon says about in terms of historically somebody with a physical impairment or sensory impairment might go to the housing office and report uh, their houses being taken over. Uh, but, it, you know, especially in terms of mental health, which we know is a significant population or in terms of neurodivergent populations, you know, if we think about what what's happened since the 1980s, we went through a period of deinstitutionalization. So the old, in the UK, mental hospitals were closed down because of the Mental Health Act. Uh, and this led to community care uh, and people being supported in the community. And as community care has developed, rather than improving, especially because of uh, because of austerity in the U UK from 2008, we've seen a disappearance of services. Uh, research which we looked at loneliness across the northeast in terms of it was disabled people who were the most uh, overrepresented in uh, groups which reported loneliness and isolation. And if you compare that with a disappearance of services, it creates spaces of exploitation. Uh, and I think it's in these spaces uh, of exploitation where local people or organised, OCGs, organised criminal groups can come in and take over these spaces. Uh, so I think that's really important. And also I always think about responses and I think police responses and collecting evidence, uh, social work responses of, of collecting information, 
uh, community health responses connect, collected it, collecting information often aren't great. So especially if you've got a significant mental health issue or neurodivergent, uh, if you're part of the neurodivergent community, then especially from a criminal justice perspective, collecting information from some of these groups is difficult. Uh, so they're often overlooked and sometimes they're criminalized. So uh, the houses are seen as a, a, you know, a, a space of antisocial behavior. And rather than seeing that as a red flag, uh, often the person who lives there is criminalized. Uh, so it's a big problem. And what we see in our research uh, is there's a lack of sharing of information. When we speak to practitioners, you know, I speak to multiple practitioners and they can all give us examples of uh, houses which have been cuckooed uh, within their local area. But when we think about joined up responses, there's very little joined up responses. And for me, that's the problem. Uh, so I don't see this as a police issue. I see this as really a poor multi-agency responses to the phenomenon problem that we have in, in terms of cuckooing, which I think is far more widespread within communities than what is reported on because of the link to county lines. Uh, and I actually uh, 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 agree in terms of uh, with Laura in relation to that link between, you know, Jack, in your research, when you talk about the different forms of cuckooing, uh, so the parasitic nest invasion is the classic where it's a disabled person who's been befriended uh, and then his, house is, his, his or her house has been taken over. But usually it's not like that in terms of, especially if the person engages in low-level forms of crime, criminality, drug use, etc., and then once this relationship is developed and the home is taken over, then often it's a disabled person who's often criminalised. And it's not really until, until exploitation is quite far down where we start seeing multi-agency responses. Mm. I, I, Jack, can I add something to that? Would that be OK? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I, I think that's really, really interesting what Stephen's just said. And, and my colleague and I, Amy Lockery, we've been talking a little bit about the, the fraying of the, the kind of welfare state safety net and how people who potentially would have been um, kind of captured in that net as a kind of victim and now falling through and hitting the policing, you know, enforcement and um, criminal justice um, net instead. Um, and just thinking about the kind of repercussions of that, um, you know, in terms of, you know, longer um yeah, life impacts and also where where do alpha victims sit within this as well? Because again, they probably would have been caught with the welfare state safety net and again a, a hitting the, the police safety net hard. So I think I think there's some really interesting kind of social and economic factors here that, that can't be overlooked as well. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to add to that that for me one of the one of the complexities that brings the police in sometimes too early and and wrongly is that the lens that they're seeing this through is essentially uh, some kind of transactional relationship between the uh, between the victim and the offender where the victim and you may even have to put that in in quotation marks is uh, obtaining receiving or getting some kind of benefit uh, from this um, symbiotic um, relationship um you know whether it's a kind of um whether it's drugs drugs is obviously the key and most obvious one county lines drug dealing whether it's uh, a, a county line or whether it's a local drug dealing that's taking place um but even things like loneliness as, as Stephen mentioned which i think is a real factor uh has a transactional component to it as well you know the quid pro quo 
is that you are getting company. Now, that might be coercive companionship, but it's still some form of uh, transactional relationships. So I don't think we've worked that out. I don't think people have really thought that through sufficiently. And uh, I think with the changes in housing from uh, local authority management here in the UK to registered social landlords and housing associations and private landlords, all that type of thing, uh, a a lot of that um, knowledge has really been lost. And the care and the safeguarding and the managerial element that used to be there perhaps 20, 30, 40 years ago has also gone. So these things tend to surface, as Stephen said, when antisocial behavior arises or there's some kind of violent incident or um, interface with neighbors that goes badly wrong. And those suddenly it all kind of comes to the surface. But following on very quickly behind the transactional relationship is agency and the, the level of agency that a particular individual may have or may present. And that uh, can also change the dynamic in the situation, but it can change the dynamic in terms of uh, how the police respond. Yeah, I mean, just to just to build on that and, and that point on agency, which I think is crucial. Rose, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that idea of agency, but also how this might align with discourses of modern slavery. For example, I think maybe I'll, I'll come to that. What I was just thinking while you were talking then, and hopefully I didn't miss it and briefly when I had to pop out, that um, one of the problems, like Stephen just said, is one of ownership. And that I think there's a lack of ownership of the cases and there's a lot of pushing oh, that's not our problem, it's a, it's a social care problem, no, it's a police problem, no, it's a housing problem. And there isn't a, a kind of oversight and then people like Laura said slip through the net so I don't know whether that's a lack of understanding I think partly it's to do with and this maybe does touch on the relevance of modern slavery I think cuckooing isn't one thing and I think we'd all probably agree and I don't I wouldn't in the conversations that I had here I think on the one side there was quite um cuckooing that was quite heavily embedded within known organized crime groups that purposefully targeted somebody usually with with disability or neurodiversity um and made some money from that arrangement and then right over the other side there was just groups of quite chaotic people all of who were maybe using substances and some of whom were homeless and then maybe one of them gets a house and then somebody exploits somebody else but it could be another person the next week and those two things are not the same and they don't require the same response but they're both referred to as cuckooing and I think probably this the bit that's over here is more usefully addressed under the modern slavery umbrella but the bit over here is much more difficult and I think it's embedded in all those things that everybody else has mentioned around you know historic dismantling of public services of austerity of even the big society you know everybody will look after everyone in their neighborhoods they're not doing that um and the isolation I think is something that came up over and over again with people professionals knowing you know they know what's happening in their local areas but they don't have the capacity there aren't you know local neighborhood officers really that know what's happening maybe there are in some areas but not in others so I think yeah the diversity of the problem it creates a difficulty for the response by calling it one thing I think to to, to add to 
to that and, and also Laura's particular point around the net being people falling through that that net I'd, I would probably add drug what's happened to drug services and drug treatment over the last decade or so here as well um, in terms of broad policies reductions in funding but also reductions in outreach workers as well I, you know, speaking to someone who was an outreach worker 15 years or so ago in the drug treatment field and would have a, a good understanding of, of what his clients and the wider community were up to and hearing things on the ground and, and the reduction of those people I think has has possibly played a part in this as well and and again like you say the the, the police end up are bearing the brunt of this uh, I don't know if if it chimes with with some of your uh, fieldwork experiences as well, Simon. But going back to your point around the police perhaps entering the situation, possibly entering the situation too early. But from my experiences, cuckooed properties can also pose as quite attractive to the police because they view them as an opportunity to find drug dealers when they're out looking for them. You know, they represent a site where they may well, if they're to enter the the property, find someone they're interested in finding or find drugs or or you know. What have you did, did that align with some of the things that you've yes very much jack you know it's a kind of form of uh, containment really and kind of knowing you know where people are and uh, you know it, it it also leads into long-term uh, observational surveillance of, of some properties uh, i guess in my experience a lot of these things come to light especially when it's connected to drugs and drug supply and trafficking and drug dealing is via the neighbours because you know it's the neighbours that get pissed off when um, endless streams of people you know trail up the stairs or knock on doors or get the wrong doorbell or or arrive and slam doors at late at night and and people endlessly moving in and out and uh, sometimes being abusive and hammering on the door you know if, if somebody hasn't answered so it's those kind of things that generally tend to alert either the housing management, the landlord or the police. Um, but there's a, a very wide spectrum of responses, both in terms of how the response is done, who makes the response, how quickly the response comes, uh, so on and so forth. And and um, I've dealt with many um, uh, victims or, or people who have been cuckooed. And they're prepared to put up, in some cases, with quite a lot of antisocial behaviour, both inside and around the property, before they themselves finally think, OK, enough is enough. You know, this person has to go. Maybe the internal dynamic changes and um, that uh, symbiosis or, or transactional relationship breaks down but they suddenly want the person out. And uh, they they can, what I was able to identify that it was that they can use different forms of agency to bring about that ending. So they themselves can inform the landlord or they themselves can inform the police. And I've had situations and experiences where uh, the, the police have arrived on a, a particular housing estate or a project as they would be called in the States. And, uh, the, the, the person who owns the property, usually uh, middle-aged, uh, sometimes even mature, would approach the police and simply hand over the keys and say, 
there you go, flat number 25, third floor, just go in and sort it out. And the, the police will take the keys and they will bust or raid the property and everybody in it. And, uh, you know, that's one way of um, bringing the police in to end a particular situation. And there are many other ways that um, people who are being cuckooed can employ their agency to bring it to an end. Uh, one which I'm very familiar with is what I call casting off, where you um, basically pass the offenders onto somebody else, usually another drug dealer, uh, sorry, another uh, drug user, and say, well, you know, why don't you try Alice at number 35? You know, she's got two spare rooms and nobody's there and you'll get, you know, she'll even make you dinner. And and they basically pass the individual off as a form of kind of relegation. Um, so there, there can be very many different ways. I mean, I've also found um, uh, drug users conspiring together or conspiring with rival drug dealers or rival uh, organized crime groups to bring a particular drug dealing hub uh, or or what might be called in in Britain now might be called a bando or a trap house or a crack den uh, to bring that to an end. So by conspiring with other people for the intervention of authorities, you can bring it to an end. So it's a peculiar mix of vulnerability, transaction, agency, and uh, all of these things. It can be very complex and difficult to disentangle. I think that leads us really nicely onto another sort of theme that I wanted to to address, which is the responses to cuckooing. I know we've talked a bit about the police and others as well, but I think there's, there's plenty more possibly to, to say. Um, did anyone want to discuss the responses to cuckooing that they may have observed, things that may have worked well or, or not, as the case may be, or any ideas for what are effective responses to cuckooing? I, from my perspective, in terms of uh, a lot of the people who I am dealing with, in terms of really struggle to have agency, even when people have been reporting, their voices haven't necessarily been listened to when they've reported to multiple different services. Uh, and that relates to not just in terms of cocoon, but also our research in terms of community violence as well. Uh, and especially if it's seen as from a policing perspective, low level, uh, and especially if they don't have knowledge in terms of different forms of exploitation, including cocoon. Uh, so agency is difficult. So, you know, some of the participants and some of the people I've worked with do have agency when they're socially connected. But when they have poor social connectivity to services, to the local community, to family members, then it's, they, they often feel like they're all, from our perspective, are entrapped uh, within a community and within their own homes. Uh, and sometimes this goes on for a very long time. So, you know, I've came across some horrendous cases where, you know, uh, one, one young man... Uh, where they had removed the locks from his door. And actually, usually you get local members of the community reporting uh, incidents, but the local members of the community were actually also using his house. Uh, so he almost had nobody to turn to, and it often related to eviction, which led to a social service and then a multi-agency response, including the police. Uh, and sometimes the, 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 the victims who I've worked with, in a sense, had, like I've already mentioned, had been criminalised a number of times, you know, had fines, had caution.
evictions, and then suddenly they were going to uh, be evicted, and housing social services have to step in, and then they realise that actually they've been exploited for uh, you know quite a long time. So I think agency. Some of my participants certainly have agency and have drawn on their networks, but other participants definitely have not. And I think from our perspective, from police who understand especially police actually who have knowledge of county lines and have knowledge of cuckoo. And so even when it's not necessarily county lines, they have that knowledge and they understand what agencies are out there to work with. Uh, but it's often your police officer on the ground who doesn't have that knowledge and that's where the key issues come within our research. Yeah, good point. I think I think that's an, yeah, an essential point and one that I'm sort of currently writing a little bit about, which is actually thinking about rather than viewing policing as this monolithic thing, recognising the variance within policing um, and recognising, for example, that neighbourhood policing teams may actually be quite good uh, at responding to cocooning. They may have built good relationships uh, within certain communities. They may have more time, for example, to be able to do certain things, whereas you get, for example, a response officer who's called to a, uh, to a job at a cuckoo property and may view the situation in a different light or decide to respond to it in a different way. And actually that variance can actually cause problems for multi-agency responses to the people experiencing it, but also within the police as well, where people, you know, different officers may get frustrated about the actions that their colleagues have taken. Um, Rose, I know you mentioned earlier about sort of multi-agency working and, and policing. I don't know if you had anything to add on. on yeah, I think the point that you just made is really important, not to kind of just brush everything. Yeah, everybody's like that because there's variation in policing, there's variation in social care and housing as well, especially given what Simon said about the complexity of the housing situation here, that there's some fantastic housing officers who will go beyond, you know, what they probably should be doing to help somebody. You know, I was talking to somebody who'd taken a victim to the bank to help them with opening a new bank account. And they took such a long time. The problem I think there is that, the, and the same in adult social care, there's some, some really good work, but it seems to always be done by people who are going above and beyond their actual job and that can't be the system that we rely on it ha you know it has to be embedded somewhere and so I think yeah I think that's a, a, a problem with a, a, the, the problem that you identified with police goes everywhere there are really good people and there are also people who are not necessarily not good but they're maybe just not not aware they're not trained they you know haven't come across it before and they don't know what to do um the other thing that I wanted to say has escaped me <laughs> <laughs> um about uh, it'll come back to me in a minute probably that's okay i'll, I'll come should have written come it to, down i'll come Can to I laura just, and then I'm sorry. Oh, just sorry. one point in terms of just about the policing but also the disappearance of adult service adult social workers as well that is having a huge problem because most of the resources of social work now are in children's services which are aimed to protect children uh who experience abuse within the home uh but actually that is often at the cost of because of cutbacks adult services and it's really adult services which will be crucial in this role in terms of many of these teams sorry i'll stop speaking now and and, and Stephen, <laughs> those multi-agency partnership arrangements mm -hmm. have really all withered away over the past yeah. 10 or 12 13 years with the current government we have here in the uk yeah. uh whereas before they worked better they weren't great but they worked better than they do now so in the absence of these multi-agency partnership frameworks we're left with the final response which really is just the police response and it's yeah. about enforcement uh so 
we're we need to go upstream and deal with these issues at a far earlier stage of early intervention before it gets to the point where everyone's calling the police and saying you've got to shut that place down because it's become a nightmare for everyone and uh, so you know about moving upstream and partnership working would help do that I think. Laura did you want to come in? Yeah so I've been looking at the strategies that um, the police and, and um, community community partners have been implementing particularly across the north of England um, over the last few years and I would say that there are many multi-agency partnerships operating um, but what seems to there's a general consensus that the the police and their partners have no idea about numbers how many people are either at risk or currently being cuckooed Um, and that's that's for various reasons, but one of them is because they don't have a specific cuckooing flag on their system. So the the police are recording cuckooing in many, many different ways, and some of them can't spell cuckooing. So it will go down as, you know, something, a slight variation. So they get lost um, during the kind of morning intelligence analysis briefings. Um, so that that's an issue. I think talking about going upstream, um, the reality is that we have a really um, complex, stretched social housing um, or lack of social housing right now. Like So I think in an ideal world, we would not place a vulnerable potential cuckooing victim in a de- kind of, you know, a deprived area um, where we know that there's potential county lines activity or other types of exploitation. But the reality is that we're probably going to do that. Um, because we don't have enough housing. So one of the things I've been really interested in is this idea of sensitive lets. So this kind of arrangement where you recognise that what you're doing is risky. You know that you're placing a vulnerable person almost at risk by putting them in this area, but you're wrapping services around them. So kind of awareness raising around exploitation, um, about the, you know, who who is permitted into your home, how you can say no, all of these different things. Um, And... (sighs) For me, this this feels like a, a better option than just moving people constantly, because what we find is that cuckooing victims are often repeatedly targeted um, and we're just moving the problem to, to kind of different neighbourhoods. Um, so for me, yeah, kind of sensitive lets and kind of a kind of 360 wrap around awareness raising and um, check in is is a sensible solution. Um, but again, that will require resource, time, all of these different things. But I'll be looking at that next year. So I'll let you know how I get on. Laura, I think that's a real good idea. But how is that going to work for people who have lived in a property for 10, 15, 20 years, and then their personal circumstances change such that being cuckooed almost becomes an arrangement that they're prepared to put up with or accept? And I'm thinking about people who are basically on the breadline, people who have suffered from austerity, and really, their day-to-day existence is now about survival. And if if somebody comes in who's prepared to enter into some transactional arrangement, that might suddenly be attractive. So I'd, it's a I'd, really I'd, good deal, yeah, Simon. If someone says deal. to yeah, you, "It can be," I will use your spare room for a week, and you can have unlimited drugs, or you can have this amount. It's it's a good deal. You know, yeah. it's not yeah. difficult 
to find potential cuckooing victims. And that's what's really tragic, I think. Um, for me, some of this is about disruption. So gaining access to properties that have been cuckooed is notoriously difficult, um, particularly because the police don't have a right of access. The, the, the victim will just shut the door. Um, housing associations fare a little bit better because they can go in and do checks. But one of the things I've been looking at is um, who has access to that property? So, for example, um, electricians, people who check boilers, spec savers who are doing home visits now, like who, who uh, fire officers, anyone who can get through the door, we should be training them to kind of use their professional curiosity to say something's not right here. It's a gut instinct or something is up. And then I think it is up to the, you know, the various kind of social services to to intervene, particularly if there's children involved. Um, but it's tough and the, it, you know, in a cost of living crisis as well. Yeah, fire service officers you know. are a very good one, by the way. That they always they're permitted direct access. So yeah. Yeah, but again, they are heavily overworked, and you know, do they know the referral mechanism to kind of flag that maybe you know it's really so. The other people who I think should be really on it are um, those who give out keys or fobs to social housing. So if you've got someone who's recurrently losing their key or fob, I think there should be a question about why and actually are they being handed out or those just just you know gentle gentle curiosity might be a really kind of important tool. Um, to 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 kind of reduce victimization, I think. But yeah. the question of how do we stop people being re-victimized is really tough. It's particularly it's very, if they like the deal. Yeah. Very oh absolutely yeah. very big issue. I mean I I, I interviewed a, a man recently in his um early late 60s early 70s and uh he had been a, a a drug user in his younger life but not of late but again you know because of austerity and no money began someone made him an offer basically and he took up the offer and um his life spiraled downwards so quickly uh, just because he was trying to make ends meet uh, and these people came in and they ended up running a business from his property and and I think that's another issue once people in in terms of the spectrum of cuckooing some people are more invisible if you like uh, both as a victim and as a, a an offender and some people are just brazen they will run ba basically run a business from your property and with very little kind of um, uh, boundaries of of who can see that or is it visible to the neighbors and and that that again is going to bring police in hard uh and it's going to go badly for the victim because they're going to be seen as complicit to um quite extensive criminality so it, it, yeah difficult situations i think there and that's one of the threats that they'll use you know the the cuckooing perpetrators you know you're complicit now you're going to lose your property you're going to lose your children yes. um so it's you know and quite often they'll place the victim in debt bondage so that you know there's particular areas where the perpetrators are staging burglaries to say two thousand pounds has been stolen you know or is that money so you're going to have to deal on the street um so you know it's it's quite a sophisticated setup in some cases sometimes it really isn't and it's not discreet in any way, shape or form. So yeah. I think it depends on the, the OCG or the nature of the localised crime group. Yeah, which, which very neatly, I guess, goes back to that idea of variance uh, that we 
referred to. That's referred to various times as well. I'm conscious that we have only five minutes left of the, the, the hour that I've sort of allocated for discussion. So I'm conscious to make sure we get to the, the final question that I, I wanted us to uh, address. But before we do so, um, just to remind uh, the audience that we will be giving uh, 15 minutes at the end for, for Q&A. So please do uh, put any questions into the Q&A that you might have uh, so we can uh, address them. But the final uh, area that I'd like us to discuss before that um, is around uh, our current knowledge base on cuckooing, um, the research that has been done, and perhaps what future res research needs to be undertaken. Stephen, I noticed you, you mentioned possibly earlier the fact that more research is required, that, that classic <laughs> researcher phrase. Um, did you have any thoughts on Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> shouldn't have said that. Uh, I think in terms of uh, what Laura was saying about wraparound services around around homes, that's really an important uh, consideration in terms of what we see, because we, we've got a paper coming out soon, which we talk about domestic colonisation, which is a broader concept of uh, cuckooing, but also when homes are being exploited in different ways from the outside, not just within uh, and usually what happens is people get moved. Uh, and what is really important is that we stop that from happening. Uh, because actually in terms of cuckooing, then houses can be picked up very quickly, at a, uh, you know, in terms of when people have been moved, in terms of when houses become a site of abuse, in terms of then we're rewarding the perpetrator and punishing the victim uh, in these situations. So from our perspective, we're really interested in developing more research from a local perspective, looking at local forms of exploitation and violence and localised cuckooing. And I think that a lot more research needs to be done to think about, well, the extent of cuckooing, broadening the research, which uh, yourself and Simon have done in terms of uh, typologies of cuckooing and different forms of cuckooing. Uh, and we really want to identify in terms of how the process of cuckooing takes place, but also in terms of that link to county lines. So from our perspective, in terms of we think that localised cuckooing creates that space where if a county line comes into an, uh, 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 an area, then in a sense, just the, the, in the same way they take away, take over the networks of crack cocaine, heroin and other forms of uh, drugs, they take over the network of cuckooed houses. So for us, that is a really important area of research, localised cuckooing. Uh, so that's where we would like to go in the future in relation to research. Brilliant. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Rose, did you have any thoughts? On um, I think... I remembered the thing that I wanted to say, which is what Laura said about moving victims. And I think there needs to be, you know, I think at the moment the approach seems to be we need to move the victim, which I mean, there's so many people that are potentially able to be victimised that it doesn't do anything really. And it's very stressful for a number of reasons, moving people um, outside of a place where they might have lived for a long time. So I think looking at alternatives to that, and how, you know, any, just an alternative response really to focusing on the movement of victims. Which I guess leads a little bit to, to the paper that I published a, a couple of years ago around that amplification spiral. And actually when you're moving people around uh, in various ways, it can just simply amplify the problem, both in a material sense, but also in the perceptions of, of, of people's heads about the problem as well, which can often instigate the same responses, which further amplifies. So the spiral uh, goes on. Um, Laura, did you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think linked to that, I I'd really like to see a piece of um, research conducted around partial closure orders. 
Um, so this kind of idea that you you know the the housing association or you know um, local authority can apply to court um, and basically say to the person who lives in the property, you are not allowed anyone to come in. Um, and they can place the notice in the window to say, you know, this isn't my fault. They've they've, they've caught up with you and your cuckooing behaviour. Um, so I'm not to blame. You know, I'm I'm not a grass, etc. I'd like to see a bit of research around that um, to look at the kind of the risks and the the benefits of of that kind of um, strategy to to end cuckooing because ultimately. You close one cuckoo property and another one just pops up. We're just displacing all of this, you know, all of this activity. Um, but yeah, I'd also like to, as part of that study, I'd like to know a little bit more about whether if you place the the partial closure closure order as like kind of a visible thing, does it reduce kind of feelings of community safety? I.e., are you just raising public or community fears around the kind of safety of their own neighbourhood. So, yeah, that would be a very specific piece of work I'd like to do. I might get a PhD student to look at that one for me. Brilliant. Yeah, sounds great. Simon? All good ideas. Yeah. Well, you know, ask a researcher what research needs done, and I would say all of it um, in every direction, up, down, sideways, breadthwise and depthwise. Um, there's so much to do here and we really are only scratching the surface of it. Uh, both uh, Jack and I have developed typologies of, of cuckooing. There's a lot more work to do. All the issues around um, uh, definition, um, uh, greater exposition of uh, the stories of people involved on the victim and the offender side. And uh, again, those who are both victim and defender, um, because that can happen as well. Uh, issues around vulnerability, neurodiversity. And, and so all of that kind of contextual situational stuff uh, around motivations and um, practice. Uh, and then on the other side of that are the responses. And um, Jack, I know you're heavily involved in the kind of in looking at the enforcement side, and that's really uh, powerful and very useful. But there are many other agencies that really don't chip in here in the way that they should do. Uh, so, you know, um, as social workers, for example, um, home repair people, um, uh, district nurses, uh, you know, people who have a legitimate entree into properties need really to be trained around some of this so that they can recognize it and uh, again here in the UK we have a proliferation of what we call registered social landlords people who are not the local authority but they manage social housing and rented accommodation I just think they need to do more uh, there are pockets of good um, practice, uh, but those pockets of good practice tend to rely on one or two individuals who are in a, a handful of organisations and they bring the solutions because of their personal energy and their commitment. And when they move on, it just all falls through. So, you know, we need a far more consistent level of uh, understanding, training, uh, etc. around around the whole domain. And maybe we do need to have some kind of offence based on um, parasitic attachment or whatever we call it, uh, so that there is, you know, a, a particular uh, offence 
quite what that is. I haven't given it enough thought yet, but, uh, you know, there could be something there because it's needed. The Home Office are working on it, Simon, so we don't have to worry about that. That's that's covered. <laughs> I just wanted to just very quickly throw in, like, private landlords as well are problematic because they potentially particularly if they're not great landlords don't want anything to do with it so some of the police i've been speaking to have said that they will you know they will reach out to the the landlord no response no response until they say by the way you're going to be prosecuted for being complicit in drug dealing bang straight away they're they're engaged um so i think there's there's private landlord engagement issues as well that that need to be addressed um so yeah, we can't overlook overlook them too. Mm, good point. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think very neatly goes back to something you referred to right at the start, Stephen, which is that structural vulnerability, recognizing that people affected by cocoon, yes, it's a very diverse population and people are affected in different ways and have different levels and forms of agency but that structural context and the structural vulnerability that they're surrounded from my perspective the key uh to, to effectively respond to mm. and and neurodiversity i think is is for me the biggest of issue that i see in a regular basis now and and um you know structural vulnerability can lead very much into um invisibility uh and a lot of um disabled people do fall into the category of being socially invisible even within their own communities and um you know it's i just don't think we've worked all of that out sufficiently yet or the relationships that kind of uh, are multiplex here we, we we need to understand it better yeah i absolutely agree with that i think in terms of disability has been invisible and uh, and uh, within criminology so the study of criminology in terms of uh Obviously, pathological understandings of disability have appeared within research within the criminal justice system. But in terms of when we think about victimization, criminology and disability studies have been very late in relation in understanding and researching uh, systems of exploitation and vulnerability and victimization within the disabled community. I agree. We all agree. <laughs> I think one thing we we do need to to really you know to really acknowledge though is the is the impact that being cuckooed can have on a victim um that feeling of of being powerless um we're seeing you know i'm i'm hearing um narratives around people um feeling suicidal or who, who have taken their own lives um and that the the intimidation and violence that can occur within a cuckooing situation um particularly when they are when the perpetrator is asked to leave that seems to be yeah. generally a tipping point like it's time for you to go okay now we get violent um, you know, it's not just a case of them continuing to deal drugs quite often as, you know, there's there's weapons involved, there's a lot of coercive control involved, there's threats. It's it's a really ugly crime that isn't a crime. Um, and I think linked to that, one thing I've been hearing that is really interesting is that cuckooing perpetrators do not want a modern slavery conviction. They're happy to be, not happy, but content to, to be convicted of kind of a drugs market offence. They absolutely do not want a modern slavery conviction because it, in terms of their reputation, I think on the street, it, it's not great. Um, but also in terms of where they'd be incarcerated and who they'd be incarcerated with. So there may be some lever there that can be pulled um, in terms of the new legislation that kind of aligns cuckooing to modern um, slavery um, in a way that, you know, that may act as a disincentive 
Um, but again, as with cuckooing victims, you know, you you eliminate one county line and bang, the next day you've got two more. So it's, I, I've literally been writing a report for for the, the police I've been working with. And the first line is, you know, I mean, it's not, could you please do something about your organised crime groups? Because <laughs> that's where the problem is. Um, but, you know, after that, we, we come down to the reality of, of um, yeah, of their behaviours and, and the markets that they just seem to to dominate. Um, yeah, one of the one of the police officers I just des- describes it as whack a mole, and I think that's a pretty good description. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to. Um, we've we've had a, a a question in, and I'm conscious that we have to wrap up uh, in five minutes. So I'm very conscious that I want us to address the questions. So uh, this has come from Alan Dawes. Thank you, Alan, for for asking this question. Uh, and he's asked, is there any data? on whether cuckooers uh, strike in their own home areas, such as within five kilometres of their usual home, or do they travel further away to commit their crimes, such as burglars, thieves, and other criminals? I think it's an excellent question. I think it aligns very closely with the, the notion of county lines. Do, does anyone want to take that? I, I can jump in very quickly on that one. Uh, it's both, actually. It's both. It just It just depends which end of the line you're at. Uh, or whether it's a county line or a local, um, what we used to call in old-fashioned parlance, um, a local drug market. Um, Bearing in mind a county line is usually from point A to point B, and point B being in a different county or a different town. Uh, It's not always quite like that, but, uh, you know, I've I've come upon um, all of these examples, to be honest with you. I've also come upon examples where... um, Particular organised crime groups or, or drug networks have basically have their own network of properties that they can cuckoo from town to town to town and they can they can move around or they'll have 10 or 15 properties that they will use on a rotated basis within one town. So, for example, let's say in, in Britain, it could be Great Yarmouth or Grimsby or somewhere like that or Plymouth. And, uh, you know, uh, there's um, examples, certainly examples of that that I come upon on, on a regular basis. So it's um, it's it's both uh, both. I think, Alan, is the answer to that question. Yeah. I would agree. And um, the oh, God, what was I going to say? Um, it was something Wait. about the end. It was something about the, I'm sorry. It was something about the end of the line. Ignore me. I'll come back if we've got time. I, I was that was exactly what I wanted to say, Simon. Um, oh, that was it. Um, sometimes the the county lines um, gangs as well will share information on cookie properties. Yeah. So yeah. they'll they'll send out a you know some sort of flash alert to be like, oh, you know, flat B and wherever is down, but you could use this one instead. And I think I found that quite interesting. You know, because you, you often see them, you know, these county lines gangs as being quite territorial, you know, sometimes violent towards each other. But actually, they're just sharing information the same way that potential local businesses might. Um, I, I thought that was quite interesting. Laura, I can add to that. I interviewed a young woman whose modus operandi for finding a place to cuckoo was to go to a local pharmacy nine o'clock in the morning here in the UK and wait in line for people who were getting methadone prescriptions and when they walked out she would uh, approach them and ask them and say do you know where I can crash Uh, and that was that was enough to have an invite into two or three properties and of those one of them would fit 
So it came it's not from... unusual, Simon. I'm hearing about people being followed home and being yes. told that your property is now mine. I've also been hearing stories about them waiting in A&E for people demanding mm. particular drugs and saying, I'll give you them if you let me use your house. They, mm. Like I said, some of them are quite sophisticated. Yes. Um, others, not so much. Yes, but I suppose also just one last thing I agree with. Exactly, I agree with both of you. What you are saying in terms of local land, it's uh, people move across uh, counties, but also family members. So I have came across family members. Uh, so, you know, an incident uh, which I recently came across was the son of the mother who basically moved back into the home uh, to set up his uh, drug enterprise. Uh, so in terms of, uh, and I've heard a number of stories actually, where it's uh, maybe an uncle or a nephew uh, who moves in and then uses the property, which let, which then, you know, adds an extra layer of complexity. Yes, brilliant. Well, Alan's got back in touch to say thank you. So I think we've sufficiently answered that question. He also knows where Yarmouth is. So a further context, that's uh, fine. I'm very conscious of time. Uh, in the UK, it's coming up to quarter past 11 as well. So I think, uh, at least for myself, I'm, I'm, we'll be ready to venture off to, to bed relatively soon. Um, but I will uh, conclude now just by thanking uh, Steve and Simon, Laura and Rose for what I found myself to be a really stimulating conversation. And it feels like the start of a, uh, a conversation uh, really that I hope will continue uh, to the future. Um, so thank you very much for all of your contributions. Um, I'm looking forward to reading future work and having future discussions possibly in the future on this area.